0: And it comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 to verse 32. This is what God says. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation? that you're holding with each other as you walk. And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had, not even seen, they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, "O no foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This is God's word. Please be seated. The last Sunday was Easter Sunday, and um, I didn't plan it this way, but this passage actually takes place um, pretty much that same time after the women found the tomb empty, and so it kind of, I guess, is a good transition here. But what we're doing is we're actually looking not at Easter per se, but we're looking at what we had started to talk about prior to Easter Sunday, and and that was the church. If you remember um, what we talked about last time we met and looked at the church, we looked at Matthew 28. And we looked at what we call the Great Commission. And what we said there, what we saw there, is that there were three things that Jesus gives these apostles to do. And these three things were, number one, make disciples of all the nations. Number two, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And number three, teach them everything that I have commanded or that he has commanded. And so, broadly speaking, what we said last time is that that's basically the mission of the church. This is what God had envisioned for His church. Broadly speaking, there were every true church has three things. There are making disciples, they are baptizing, and you know, along with that communion, and teaching and preaching everything that God had commanded. Historically speaking, those three things became known later on in the church as the, true, or the three marks of the church, Teaching, the word, baptism, the sacraments, right? And making disciples, which we call church discipline, where we get the word disciple. And so that's what we looked at here. And what we're going to do here is, is we're going to look at two of those things. We're going to look at the word and we're going to look at the sacrament. And then maybe in, in a couple of weeks, we'll also then look at this idea of discipling and church discipline, which is, I think, much more difficult. Um, why are we doing this? because we want you to know, or I want you to know, I can be reminded again of not only uh, what you should be looking for in church, but what the church ought to be doing, right? Not only what's really important in the church, but what the church ought to be doing, what we ought to be doing. And so this is a good, I guess, learning moment, if you've never heard this, to understand what the church is. And did you have noticed this in that in the Great Commission, okay, there's baptism, there's preaching and teaching of God's Word, there's there's making disciples, those three marks of the church, there's nothing about fellowship, right? There's nothing about community. You ever think about that? And I know most of us who go to church, we already say that these things we already know is important, right? The Word is important. Preaching and teaching is important. But I would probably say nine out of ten times when you're looking for a church, you're looking for fellowship. You're looking for community. And we don't really see that here, at least in this passage. Now, I'm not saying that that's something that we don't have to do or that's something that we have to ignore, right? Certainly we don't. In fact, what I want to show you as we look at the Word and the sacraments, that this passage really is about fellowship. This passage is is about fellowship. Now, let me ask you a question. When you talk about fellowship, what do you need to have fellowship? And I'm going to venture... Most of us, at a very basic, fundamental level, when you think about fellowship, you think of three things. You think of good conversation over good food and drink with some good people. That's pretty much it, right? At a very fundamental level, what's fellowship? It's hanging out with good conversation over good food and drink, right, with good people. And and what you see here is we understand this in our passage, the disciples, these followers of Jesus, um, these were people that they didn't just see Jesus, okay, in the flesh or in the person. They got to hang out with Jesus. They got to eat with him. They got to drink with him. Good food. They got to sleep with him. They got to talk to him, listen to him. They got to converse with him. Good conversation, right? Right? And basically, they got to fellowship with this good person, right? They not only got to see and touch him, they followed him and they fellowshiped with him. And so immediately we start thinking, well, of course, of course they got to do that. And it was easier, therefore, being a Christian or being a disciple in the first century as opposed to the 21st century because... Those people back then, they actually got to fellowship with him. They actually got to talk to him. They get to eat with him. They get to fellowship with him. They they get to touch him. They got to see him in the flesh. And after all, seeing is believing, isn't it? But what I want to show you from this passage is this. I want you to see that it's not that simple, nor is it really that accurate, because something in our passage is happening that shows otherwise. I just learned about this guy named Joshua Bell. Do you know who Joshua Bell is? got yeah, one person shaking his head. He was considered, maybe 10, 20, or 15 years ago, the best violinist in the world. The New York Times said of Joshua Bell, quote, Joshua Bell stands in no one's shadow when it comes to playing the violin, end quote. And in 2007, and you can find this on YouTube video, 2007, they did an experiment with this guy Joshua Bell in Washington, D.C., And in the subway of D.C., what they asked him to do is they wanted him to set up to play the violin in the the middle of the subway station as all these people are walking by. But the only thing is they asked him to wear nothing but a baseball cap, a long sleeve t-shirt, some blue jeans, and just kind of start playing. So Joshua Bell, right, the greatest violinist in the world, as some people say, goes there dressed up in plain clothes in the basement of some subway in D.C., and he pulls out this violin, And this violin, and and I I don't know anything about violins, but this is what it said. This violin was a Gibson EX Huberman. Do you know what that is? I don't know, but apparently his violin was handcrafted in 1713 by a person named Antonio Stradivari. It's a Stradivarius violin. It cost $3.5 million. A $3.5 million violin, and the best violinist in the world in the subway of DC starts picking it up and he starts playing it. He starts playing it for 43 minutes. He plays six classical pieces, and, and you can see this on YouTube. It's an amazing thing. But what the most amazing thing about that clip was this: nobody paid attention. Nobody, nobody cared. All these people, is at rush hour, people in the lines trying to get tickets. Here's this guy in plain clothes, playing the most expensive violin, the most beautiful music. You know, he's playing some Bach, and nobody stops to listen. Nobody really cares. Here is this guy for 43 minutes. He's exuding truth and beauty. He's exuding goodness and music, and no one saw him. No one recognized him. No one saw who he was because he didn't look like a world-class violinist. And what's interesting then in our passage is this. We're given a report that Jesus is actually reappearing, right, after his death before a couple of disciples. And for some reason, we're told they don't recognize him. They don't recognize him. Three things I want to show you from this passage, okay? Because we want to ask the question, how come they don't recognize him? How come they don't see? Three things. One, there's good conversation two there's good food and three there's good people all right good conversation look at this first of all jesus shows up on this road called emmaus it's a town seven miles from jerusalem and there was a disciple named cleopath the other one we're not given some people say maybe it was his wife we're not sure but they're walking away from jerusalem probably just going home because the show is over Jesus just died. They don't know where else to go. They're sad, we're told, because they thought he was the one. And here comes this person, and it's Jesus, and he walks up to them, and what does he do? He initiates a conversation. He says, what are you talking about? And they say, where have you been? What's what's everyone talking about? We're, we're, we're We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. We thought that he was the promised one, but he died, and now we don't know what to do. And what's interesting here is for some reason, these disciples, right, they didn't recognize him. And whether maybe Jesus had a a hood over his face, I don't know, maybe his beard was a little extra long, I mean, being in that tomb for so long, we don't know, but they just don't recognize him. And they were his disciples. These disciples, more than likely, they would have known who Jesus looked like. They they, they followed him for some years, probably for at least three. They're not one of the twelve, but they were most likely part of this larger group that followed Jesus. So they'd been with Jesus. They they served with him. They, They fellowshiped with him. They believed him. And yet, after spending all that time, they don't recognize him. And the question we have to ask is Why? And the only answer we're given directly is in verse 16, where it says, Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So they don't recognize him. And here's this person who they don't recognize, Jesus Christ, and he's talking to them about what happened. So, what does he do? you see verse 21 that they thought this guy was going to redeem israel verse 22 and 24 they heard about these women who said he's not in the tomb anymore and they don't know what to do that with that information because they're just depressed so what does jesus do in the conversation he tells them he says foolish ones slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the christ should suffer these things and enter his glory and look at verse 27 or listen to verse 27 It says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they're having a conversation, and Jesus begins talking about the Bible, right? And what's curious is this. Jesus, right there on the road, is basically telling these guys, you don't understand the Bible. And this is interesting because the disciples probably thought they knew the Bible, at least the Old Testament, right? They were faithful Jews. They grew up as Jews. They were probably raised according to the laws of Moses and so forth, probably even memorized a lot of the Scripture. But here Jesus seems to be saying, you didn't get it. You don't understand it. You thought you did. You thought you knew what it was all about. You thought you knew how to read the Bible, right? But you didn't. And so he has a conversation with them, and what we're told is he begins interpreting to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now listen very carefully. This is where I think Jesus is giving us a paradigm or a picture of how we should look at the Bible. He's talking about the Word of God, and he says this in verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. That's what we believe. And then the prophets wrote the rest of the Old Testament, right? And beginning with Genesis then, all the way through the whole scriptures, he had to interpret for them. He had to explain to them that in all the scriptures, it was about him. Think about this, okay? We know that the New Testament is probably about Jesus, but did you know that the Old Testament is also about Jesus? That's what Jesus is saying. And so beginning with Moses means that he probably talked to these guys about Genesis. And, and then he walked through the Garden of Eden with them in that story. Then he talked to them about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the Exodus and Leviticus. And he goes on to the Psalms and he unpacks how all of that was about him. You ever read a book but you never finish it? You only got halfway through? So you kind of stop in the middle because you thought you knew where the story was going. You've lost interest. You already know what it's about. But then later on, one day you pick up the the book again and you finish the book. And now that you know the ending, you go back to the beginning of the book and you say, oh, I thought I knew what it was about, but actually it meant something completely different. You ever try reading the Bible, right? It's, It's not just one book. It's It's 66 books put together. It's 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. But it's like one story after another, beginning to the end, beginning to the end. And so what Jesus seems to be saying, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, from beginning of Genesis to the end of the Bible, he's saying it's about me. It's a story about the history of how God saves people. That all 66 books that we have now is a history of redemption. The Bible is not a reference book. It's not a book of examples that we're called to live up to. it's not just a to-do list of how to be a good person. Although there are 66 books, what we're seeing here is that the way Jesus is interpreting it, it's one single story, one true story with one plot line, and it's about a rescue. It's about how Jesus saves his people. And so he begins with Adam and how Adam messed up in the garden because he's disobedient. But then we learn that Jesus is the better Adam, who obeyed God in the garden where Adam failed. We learned about Abraham. You see, I know that story about Abraham. He was the the guy that God called to start a nation. But then Jesus is the guy who started a new nation, right? We learned about Isaac, who was offered up on the altar by his dad as a sacrifice, but then his life was spared, But then we learn later that it was Jesus who was offered up as a sacrifice, but his life was not spared. We read about Moses, and we know the story of Moses. He was the mediator between the people of God and God Himself. He stood in the gap. But we learn later, Jesus is the better Moses who stood in the gap between his people and the holy God. It's one story. Jesus is the climax. He's the main point. He's the main character. He's the story of the Bible, the story of redemption. And it reaches its climax, this story, in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what he's trying to tell these disciples who thought they knew the Bible, but he had to reinterpret it for them. You know, a British writer by the name of Dorothy Sayers, uh, she she lived at the same time around C.S. Lewis. Uh, She died in the 1950s. She was an author of detective fiction. Uh, Very smart. She learned Latin when she was six. She was the first woman to receive an awarded degree from Oxford University, right? Her main character in these detective books that she wrote was a character by the name of Lord Peter Whimsey. And the thing is about this author, Dorothy, was that she loved that character that she wrote so much that she writes a new character later on in her books by the name of Harriet Vane. And this character, Harriet, Coincidentally, it's supposed to be the first woman to be awarded a degree from Oxford University, and she writes detective fiction. You see that's weird, isn't it? You see what happened? The author, Dorothy Sayers, falls in love with this character in her story so much that she writes herself into the story, and in the story, they get married. They end up getting married. This character, Peter, sees Harry and falls in love, and they get married. And so what the author, Dorothy Sayers, did was that as she wrote about this character, she created someone, and she loved him so much that she wrote herself into the story. And this is what Jesus is trying to say, that in a more real way, in a similar way, God, the author of history, Loved sinners so much, the author of our lives loved us so much that he becomes one of us. He comes into our story, into our lives, in order to fall in love with us and rescue us. That's what God is like. And if you understand this story, that story should make our hearts burn. And that's what happened to these disciples. At the end of our passage, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures to us? Friends, let's be honest. What do you hope to hear on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon at church? I mean, do you, hear, do you want to hear a pep talk to kind of get you out of bed Monday? Um, do, you, do, you want to, do you prefer like a moral improvement method, uh, a list of things, 10 things you should do if you want a successful life? Um, do, you, do, you, do you look for a therapeutic, feel-good-about-yourself message like Oprah Winfrey? Right? Or if you're a masochist, right? are you always looking forward to a rebuke to tell you how messed up you are and that you need to get your act together? All right, maybe once in a while. That's, that's important. But the thing is, I know what I should be doing most of the time. I just don't do it. And when I'm told I should be doing something what i need is the desire to do it with my whether it's in my relationship to others whether it's to myself in my own conscience i need to hear about grace i need to hear about how i've been justified and forgiven i need to hear the story of the gospel of jesus christ how god's promised work in my life solely is possible because of the basis of someone else's work someone else's righteousness. I need to know every week how much God, who has created the universe and everything in it, who knows every hair on my head and every bird that falls through the crown, that he still cares for me, that he loves me in spite of my doubts, in spite of my weaknesses, in spite of my sins, so that I can continue to be encouraged to live a life from him and for him. I need to be reminded that his grace is sufficient for me. And what I need to know then is Jesus Christ from all the scriptures, beginning with Moses and the prophets, in all the scriptures concerning him. Okay? So they had a good conversation with Jesus. But second thing, not just good conversation. You keep reading our passage, there's good food and drink. Right? Because it wasn't just about the Bible. What else? You look at verse 30 and 31. This is what he says. When he was at the table with the disciples, he took the bread, he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And what happened? Verse 31. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and then he vanished. So the disciples the whole time couldn't recognize Jesus Christ with their eyes for whatever reason. But in verse 30, as he's dining with them at their table, it says, He took the bread, he blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to them. And because of that, that's why 31 begins with the word and, because of that, their eyes were open and they recognized him. Right? How is that possible? Over a meal. Could it be that they were just reminded of Jesus Christ in the Last Supper before he was crucified, that he did the same thing? Could it be that he reminded, they remembered that Jesus, when he broke bread with them the first time, he said, do this in remembrance of me? Could it be that they at that moment remembered the bread and the wine, how the breaking of the bread was the breaking of Christ's body, and the wine poured out was his blood poured out for sin, and they remembered Jesus who said in John 6, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Could it be they remembered that? And now here they are And they don't recognize him with their own eyes. They don't remember who he is, but they remember Jesus again as he broke that bread over a meal. And they say, wait, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened us the scriptures? And in Acts chapter 2, when you keep reading, the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, here's the question again. Why were their eyes kept from recognizing Jesus? Why were their eyes kept from recognizing Jesus? And here's the answer. Because God now is instituting a new way of knowing him. You see, when you look at the Old Testament and how they worshipped, Everything was so visual. That's why you had elaborate tabernacles and temples filled with gold and jewels. You could see everything. It was meant to inspire. Elaborate architecture of temples. That's why you could smell animal sacrifices. It was very visceral, and you knew what was going on. Even the robes that the priests wore. It was meant to show something, so that you could see how elaborate and and and, and just. Uh, ornate the whole process was because part of the problem or issue in the old testament was that that yes back then in a sense seeing was still believing and even in the new testament when you look at jesus what does he do to the first disciples he says come and see and even doubting thomas he shows him his hands and so shows him the scars and says come and see And he does all these miracles in front of all these people. He heals people. He makes the lame walk and come and see with your eyes. He literally makes blind people see. Everything was visual. But in Luke 24, something has changed. Something has happened so that the disciples could no longer see who Jesus was. They could no longer fellowship with Jesus the way they used to. Something has happened so that these disciples and every believer after could no longer worship and live just by what they see. Something has happened in history that has radically altered not just the way we understand the Bible, but the way we now know and fellowship with Jesus Christ. You remember when Jesus steps out of the tomb and the first two women, Mary and Martha, go to grab him and hold him? What does Jesus say? Don't touch me. Something's different. What is it? What happened? And that something is the fact that Jesus has now risen from the dead. He's now risen from the dead, and now nothing is the same as it was before. And at that point, he brought the church into a point of history of redemption that has completely changed, and he ascends to heaven, as he says. And then later on in Acts chapter 2, he pours out the Spirit to the church so that now not just the Jews, but now also the Gentiles, the nations all over the world at the same time can know who Jesus is. Listen carefully. Contrary to our culture today, which is also so visual, where we are bombarded with images after images, where our social media is simply flipping through pictures after pictures, right? where we have short-term attention spans to listen to some guy talk for 30 or 40 minutes, where we care more about how we look than what we say. Into that culture, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we now live by faith and not By sight. And Hebrews 11. What is this faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things now not seen. And where do we get this faith? And Paul says in Romans 10-17. He says faith comes through how? Faith comes through hearing. And hearing the word of God. Faith comes how? How? Not by seeing him, but now by hearing him in his word. Before, seeing was believing. But now, hearing has become believing. Hearing the word you now have, beginning from Moses and the prophets in all the scriptures concerning Jesus. Do you see this? Or should I say, do you hear this? We think it's easier for the first Christians to believe because they got to see. But the first Christians, and every other Christian after, even the disciples who once saw, after the resurrection, believed because they heard. And just like us, they had to live by faith and not by sight. And their hearts burned. Seeing is believing still may be the motto of many today. But ever since the New Testament, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for the people of God, there is power in his word. So that now, not seeing, but hearing is believing. And the only application I can tell you is this. Therefore, listen carefully. I know sometimes some of those of you who are sitting in the pews feel like it's a pain to have to listen to a guy preach and talk for 30 or 40 minutes. And sometimes, I'm going to be very honest, I admit it, sometimes it's just boring. And did you know sometimes from here, I can see everyone's faces, so I know that sometimes you fall asleep, and sometimes there's drool coming down your lips. I know it can be very difficult sometimes. And sometimes, sometimes you might even think, man, Somebody needs to teach this guy how to preach. And sometimes, sometimes you might be right. Because preachers and teachers, we always need to work on this craft. We always need to do better. There's always something we can improve on. But sometimes, maybe sometimes, it's not just that somebody needs to teach pastors how to preach. But sometimes, somebody needs to teach you how to listen. how to listen, to be attentive, to put effort into it. Not because it could be funny, not because it could be interesting or entertaining, but because it really is the Word of God. And it's one of the ways, along with baptism and communion, by which we fellowship with Jesus today. Remember fellowship? Good conversation, good food, good people. This is what we do every Sunday. Good conversation. Jesus speaks to us through his word. We respond in prayer and praise. Good food and drink. We remember Jesus through the breaking of bread, the sharing of one, the body broken for us, the blood poured out for us, and good people. Okay, not so good all the time, but God's people because of what Jesus has done for us. He declares us forgiven and therefore good. This is why church on Sunday is also fellowship, or as the Apostles' Creed says, the communion of saints. Not because we like to hang out with each other, but because with each other, we fellowship with Jesus. Through the preaching and teaching of his word, through the administration of his sacraments, we do this by faith and not by sight, until the day that one day we will again see Jesus face to face. We do this by faith every Sunday, in fact, every day. And so I encourage you today, as you look at church and what you're coming for, be reminded, don't miss the meat of the church service and why we're there, for the garnish and the fringe benefit of everything else that the church ought to provide. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We also thank you, God, for things that we observed last Sunday, like baptism and communion. And though tedious and oftentimes even boring as those things can be, help us to see, even from your very own lips, that these things are now the ways in which you have chosen to engage with us by faith, in spirit, and truth. And so, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just be diligent attenders to worship, but we would also be intentional, faithful hearers of the Word of God, whether it be the sermon, whether it be in a Bible study, whether it be in our own personal reading, that we would look forward to fellowshipping with you through your Word, And we look forward to sharing a meal with you through communion and through baptism. That we would be reminded of what you have done for us. That you engage with us, not just intellectually, but spiritually. And so we pray that we would hold that dear to our hearts. That the life on this side of heaven is called to live a life of faith, not by sight. And that faith you have given to us through the hearing of your word. So help us more to trust in you. Help us more to put effort into the things that you have said is important. Help us to value, help us to cherish, help us to apply the very things that we hear and that we experience in our fellowship with you into the church and into the world around us. In Christ's name we pray.